Father, we pray that, that our worship, Father, we pray that even the, the preaching of your word will glorify you. That it will honor your name. And to that, we humbly submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And the children can be dismissed for Children's Church if they'd like to go. As our church has embarked on our journey of evangelism shift, learning to understand that Christ followers are sent on a mission everywhere we go, and that as we are sent by God into this world, we are to consider every interaction and every encounter that the Lord gives us as a potential opportunity to shine the light of Christ as his ambassador. So to be an ambassador for Christ means we need to engage in our world, in our daily encounters, that we are encouraged to build redemptive relationships. So evangelism shift brings up the importance of using questions that we opened up our series last week with talking about. We find that it's often good to answer questions with questions or to answer the obvious question that your discussion might raise, or we could be um, diffused, even an antagonistic question, by asking a question. So when we think of evangelism, we may think that we need to have an inventory of salvation verses, the Romans road, get up our gutsy attitude and go out and evangelize. And although that is good and excellent, also asking questions in your conversations can be one of the most powerful and effective approaches to continue your conversation, to open up the conversation, or to even start the conversation. So if you studied your way through the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus has encountered a vast assortment of characters, and during his earthly... And, um, situations during his earthly ministry, but we may not have realized is how often he used a mix of probing and rhetorical questions in his conversations. Being the son of God, Jesus knew the answers to everything he asked. So he didn't ask them for his benefit, but rather he asked the question for the benefit of those that he directed his questions to. So we see how these questions produce some amazing results. He used questions to bring out hidden truths and enforce a, a deeper and more honest understanding of where that person or that group may be in their spiritual journey. He melted their walls of defense as they were challenged with the realization of what they were saying. And so we can employ a questioning approach when conversing with other people about the gospel. And so... One example is how Jesus used a well-thought-out question to compel people to think more profoundly on what they believe and why they believe it, to challenge their assumptions. You know, if we were to do that more often, we might be surprised if you just asked more questions that some of the eclectic ideas and concepts that people believe about God or spirituality. 
Some come from agnostic and atheistic backgrounds. Others have cobbled together various religious viewpoints. Some have developed their spiritual understanding by what they read on the internet or integrate with what they see being promoted in pop culture. And all those things could muddy up for them their perception of God and Jesus Christ. Many of their thoughts, they may sound good to them in the moment until they're challenged to really think about them. And so we find that many times people frequently have a poor thought out patchwork of ideas that doesn't really hold up to scrutiny if it's challenged. Guiding them with questions can help them to think about what they are believing, and it may clear up some obstacles for them to consider Christianity. Now, a couple people mentioned to me during this week that last week I did not give many examples of questions that we could ask, and that's kind of difficult to do. Um, I suppose we can come up with some general informative questions that we could share, um, but there's not really a list of questions that you can memorize. Each encounter, each situation, each conversation you have is unique. And so we, we need to teach ourselves maybe to ask questions of what they're saying to help us formulate the question. But given that, I do have some examples for us today to consider. I mean, just simply asking, what do you mean by that? Could you explain to me a little better? Why do you think that way? How did you come to that conclusion? Where did you get that information? And then as your conversation goes along, you can be more specific and relevant to the discussion at hand. But I did find Randy Newman, uh, his book is entitled Questioning Evangelism. He does a really good job uh, from experience of relating the use of questions. And he served for over 30 years with Campus Crusade for Christ uh, at a college on the East Coast. And in the last five years, he's been with uh, the C.S. Lewis Institute. If you want to learn more about the art of asking questions, his book does a really good job on this topic, as well as recounting conversations of his failures and of questions that he used to help advance the conversation or challenge someone's thinking. So I have one more example. Someone may make a statement like, all religions are the same. And a lot of times those statements um, are statements to shut down the conversation. But really, you could simply just follow it up with, how do you know that? What do you mean by that? And that can continue the dialogue rather than it shut down the conversation. The reality is when we look at the Gospels, Jesus' examples teaches us that he used a variety of methods and a variety, with a variety of people, and he helped people to think more about an issue than what they were thinking. So last week, Jesus gave us an example of his informative question that he used and a discerning question. Today, we're going to see as he continues that conversation, he gives us an example of a rhetorical question. We see how Jesus' question is a very powerful way to drive home a point or challenge the listener 
to think more deeply about their own assumptions. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 8 today. This is a continuation of the conversation that Jesus had with the disciples that we looked at last week. And this conversation is told in three out of the four Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And last week we saw how the crowds were trying to come to terms with Jesus' identity. And as Jesus engaged the disciples in this conversation, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? The answer is God's Messiah, the Christ of God. So if you're not there already, turn to Mark chapter 8. And in this moment, as the conversation continues, Jesus challenges their ideas, and then Peter strongly reacts to it. He uses, and then Jesus uses a rhetorical question to make a point and cause them to think deeper about what it means to follow him. So let's look at Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. So calling the crowd, along with his disciples, he said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to lose his life will save it. I'm sorry. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. But what does it benefit someone? Here's this question. But what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The disciples' understanding of Jesus' identity is challenged. They have their own idea of what the Messiah is going to do and how the Messiah is going to save them from Roman rule and make everything right in the world. We know from other scriptures that they anticipate this a warrior king, that they've interpreted, interpreted prophecy and they've come to terms with Jesus as the anointed one. They've already formulated their own plan on how they think this might turn out. We get to our first question that arises from this conversation is what kind of Messiah is Jesus? Verse 31 and 32, he said, as he's teaching them, it's necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, rise after three days. And he openly spoke about it. Now, Jesus frequently taught in parables, but this discussion is clear that he speaks openly. He stated the matter plainly. Leaves no doubt to interpretation of what he's saying. This challenges the disciples' plan that he's going to suffer, be rejected. Jesus is the Messiah who's going to make everything right. He's the, in their minds, he's the ruler king. 
And so what we see is Mark's gospel, this is the turning point in the book of Mark, where Jesus introduces himself up until now, the beginning part, as the king. He's the one who is more powerful than John the Baptist. And Jesus is the one who comes to proclaim the good news, beginning in Mark 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus has a kingdom. Mark records Jesus' use of kingdom language in chapter 4 when he teaches in parables. He says, the kingdom of God is like, or what can we compare the kingdom of God to? So naturally, the disciples are viewing him as the coming king. But this turning point in Mark's gospel is now where Jesus begins for them for the first time to point them that he's the Messiah that's going to suffer. Jesus is saying, I am the king, but I'm not anything like the king you're expecting. It's told in Isaiah about the servant of the Lord who would suffer. But that idea of the Messiah suffering probably isn't making sense to them. The Messiah is supposed to defeat injustice and evil, make everything right in the world. But now Jesus is saying, I came to die, not live. I'm not here to take power, but to lose it. I'm not here to rule, but to serve. That's how I defeat evil and put everything right. So Jesus' statement makes several important points. The first is his use of the Son of Man. And for those who are looking at prophecy, Daniel chapter 7 says, one like the Son of Man is going to be the divine messianic figure who comes with the angels to make everything right. The second point that Jesus makes is, is the term, depending on your version, it is necessary or must. Jesus must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. He must rise again. He's not predicting an outcome. He's going to the cross voluntarily. The emphasis on must indicates he's planning to die. This is not something that just happened to him. The disciples are aligning themselves with the Messiah. And this must have been an incomprehensible idea to them. How can such a nonsensical thing occur to our king? But Jesus says he must suffer, he must be rejected, he must die, and he must rise again, because that word must modifies that whole sentence. Because the cross is the plan. So we have the advantage of reading scripture after the cross, and even though it's difficult to understand the suffering servant idea in human terms, according to God's plan, it must happen. And so we read in Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus Christ, although he is God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself, he humbled himself. By assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
I mentioned last week that people re will react to a statement, but will interact with questions. So we see an example here of Jesus' statement that he must suffer and die received quite a reaction. As it says, verse, last part of 32, that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. So Jesus strongly and publicly rebukes Peter in front of the disciples. And I find it interesting at this point that he focuses on, you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Jesus strongly and publicly rebukes Peter in front of them, in front of the disciples. And he points out that they're only thinking from their own point of view. They don't have God's purposes in mind, his will, his plan in mind. But Jesus rebukes the thought that he should not suffer because the divine plan requires the cross. So Jesus is the Messiah who's going to suffer. He's going to go to the cross. Death by crucifixion was common for them. Jesus is not the kind of Messiah they're expecting. They're aligning themselves, wanting to identify with the kingdom of God. They're thinking of strength and power. And Jesus says, I must suffer and die. So our second question, which is, uh, which is already up there, what does it cost to follow Jesus? Verse 34 and 35, calling the crowd along with the disciples, he said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Now this conversation includes the crowds. The crowds are following Jesus around because he's healing the sick, he's casting out demons, he miraculously fed the multitudes. And this week I was reminded of John chapter 6, right after the feeding of the 5,000, where John recounts the bread of life discourse. But in there, in verse 26, he says, Truly Jesus is telling the crowds, Truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food that perishes, but work for food that endures to eternal life. Crowds need to believe in the one who is sent by God, not to just follow him for benefits, right? He challenges their motives. So here in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is telling the disciples to align yourself with the Messiah. You will need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. So the identity question now shifts not only from who the Messiah is, but what are you identifying with? If you're going to identify with me, you must deny yourself, your identity, even your purposes, and align them with me. So confessing Christ means you identify with the way of the cross. Now, crosses are not simply hardships. They're not a handicap or an illness. They're not your nutty boss or your bossy mother-in-law or an unfair teacher. 
I like R. Kent Hughes describes it this way. He says, a cross comes from specifically walking in Christ's steps, embracing his life. It comes from bearing disdain because we're embracing the narrow way of the cross, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It comes from living in a Christ-like manner in the world and in the marketplace. It comes from embracing weakness instead of power. It comes from extending oneself in difficult circumstances for the sake of the gospel. So our crosses are proportionate to our dedication to Christ. Having some difficulties is not cross-bearing. Difficulties for Christ's sake are. Now there's a paradox of the cross that he points out here. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. I really like the emphasis because of Jesus and the gospel. The world tells us, look at yourself. Love yourself. Live for yourself. Pamper yourself. Advertising tries to teach us that we need to believe in all kinds of things. Our nice house, our security system, our fancy cars, our friends, our teams, our beer. It's that narcissism is the common theme as we focus on our vice of selfishness. The world teaches us that success and career, entertainment, power, self-indulgence in all sorts of forms, even nowadays, that you can just choose your own identity or you can Engage sexually any way that you want. If it's good for you, do it. If you're grasping for things in this life as an attempt to win, you'll lose. Instead, to identify with Christ, you must lose yourself. He's not saying that you're going to lose your sense of being. What he is saying is don't build your identity on the things of the world. reality is, as followers of Christ, to live a Christ-like life, you must give up some things as you grow in obedience to Him. Things that at a human level will trick you into thinking that they will satisfy you better than Christ. It reminds me of Juan Williamson. He was my boss in Kansas City. And uh, he shared with me one day that he really wanted to go forward at the end of service on Sunday and, and um, give his heart to the Lord, but he just couldn't do it. I mean, he really emphasized that. I just couldn't do it. So I asked him, well, why not? He was concerned about having to give up drinking. He was afraid that he couldn't do it, but he really didn't want to do that. But he wanted Christ. And so I just told him, I shared with him, I said, you know, God wants you to give up drinking. He's going to take care of that. What you need to do is respond to the Lord. And so the following Monday, Juan comes in, and he tells me he went forward to become a believer. And one of the first things that happens in his life is he gladly gives up drinking. So... We think of loss in human terms. With Christ, we gain so much more. 
The paradox to save your life is surrender, humility, cross-bearing for Jesus' sake and the gospel. It's not power. It's not strength or self-effort. Now, C.S. Lewis, toward the end of his book, In Mere Christianity, he describes Jesus' call to lose yourself to find yourself. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my, my own heredity and upbringing and surrounding and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and cannot stop. But what I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts. But it is when I turn to Christ and I give myself up to his personality that I finally begin to have a real personality of my own. And Tim Keller describes it this way. He says, you lay your sword at the king's feet and you say, command me. There's no negotiating. He's the king. And as a king on a cross, he is the one that you can submit to out of love and trust. There's no negotiating. You say, Lord, whatever you ask, I will do. Jesus utterly gave himself for you. How can you not give yourself to him? To take up your cross means you die to self-determination. You die to control of your own life. You die to using him for your own agenda. So we find here that Jesus challenges the disciples' idea of what kind of a Messiah he's going to be. He tells them the cost of following him is losing their life for his sake. So the third question this passage brings up is um, that Jesus employs as a rhetorical question is what are you trying to gain? Verses 36 and 37. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life. Now, Jesus' use of a rhetorical question here is to make a point and to cause them to think deeper. He causes them to consider the cost and then he challenges their assumptions. The idea of gaining the whole world relates to them thinking of Jesus as the ruler of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is not like any other kingdom. You do not win through strength and power. You do not conquer it. Rather, you come into the kingdom of God through surrender and weakness. And we must confess Christ as the suffering Messiah and Savior. If we're going to identify with him, we must embrace the life that he exemplified and calls us to. We must bear crosses because we are living like him. We must lose our lives for him. 
It's not enough to somewhat follow. To follow Jesus requires a commitment to become like him, to surrender your life to his calling. And when Jesus rebuked Peter, he said, you're not setting your mind on God's interests, God's purposes, but on man's. We all know what kind of interests or purposes we tend to have. Focusing on success, even posturing our lives as successful, our careers. Sometimes we'll even see it in pride of family and children, appearances. We've got everything under control. Pride in making good choices. Pride in being a good person. Parental pride that's rooted in self-sufficiency. Desires of the flesh, vices and addictions. Selfish ambitions. All kinds of sexual immorality. How about God's interests? Scripture teaches us to love God and love others. To worship Him alone. To bear fruit. To be a disciple that makes disciples. To be ambassadors for Christ. To fulfill your ministry or calling. For followers of Jesus, our character needs to be one of gentleness, self-control, kindness. Treating others more important than ourselves. Humility. Submission. Surrender. Obedience, faithfulness. So Jesus asked that question, but in verse 37, he modified it by saying, What can anyone give in exchange for his life? And some of us were in our Life to Life large group meeting last night, and we saw a video The Value of a Soul. What is the value of your life? Jesus is speaking of the eternal life of the kingdom of God. What are you gaining by following your own interests, by going your own way, or by being the captain of your own ship? What will that get you? Will it lead to anything lasting and worthwhile, or is it just going to burn up in the end? In the same manner, what can you give to gain life? Real life. Is there anything worthy enough to exchange your life for? Anything that you can identify with outside of Christ that might bring you lasting peace or joy or forgiveness of sin? I don't think so. The atonement of the cross is the epitome of Christ's self-denial. Jesus took, took on the likeness of human flesh he humbly suffered on the cross to pay the ransom for your sin. That is, there is a cost to follow Jesus. And I'm reminded of a story that David Burton told us um, several years back. We were in the Capitol Rotunda in D.C. David Burton's a U.S. historian uh, with wall builders. And uh, we were looking at this painting of Pocahontas baptism back in the 1600s. And uh, Pocahontas went to the pastor of the church wanting to get saved. 
pastor told her she didn't know the Bible well enough to convert to Christianity. So she went away for a year and studied the Bible and then returned to the church to become a convert to Christianity and be baptized. That story really perplexed me as I heard it. Um, but after I thought about it, I realized, you know, if we are not careful, we can portray becoming a follower of Jesus as an easy say a prayer and you're in. It's a gift, just believe. And although those things are true, maybe in our eagerness in evangelism to convey the gospel, we portray it as an easy Christianity. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to identify with me. So there's a cost to following him. So the follower of Jesus is challenged to understand what kind of a Messiah is he? What will it cost to follow Jesus? What are you going to gain with your plan? What can you give in exchange or as a ransom for your own life? These are powerful questions that should challenge each of us. Are we trusting in our way, our ideas, our plans? Or do we really have Jesus' purposes in mind? This brings us to our final question. What will Jesus say of you? Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Our passage here challenges us to deny ourselves and trust Christ. The opposite of that self-denial is rejecting Jesus. And it's placing us above the one who in love humbled himself and suffered and went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin paying the ransom for your life. So this is very personal. Are you ashamed of Jesus? Then you won't pay the price of denial and loss. Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. The faithful are not ashamed of the Son of God who was crucified. Viewed humanly, the crucifixion is a shameful event. Yes, the Son of God died. Yes, the Son of God was buried, but he rose from the dead. He will come again in glorious fashion with the holy angels. And then he will be a conquering king who conquers sin and death once and for all. And he puts sin away forever and restores us to himself. So to follow Jesus, you must renounce yourself and your self-focused ways follow God's way. What is it that you're trying to gain? Does Jesus not call you? Jesus does not call you to just put your toe in the water for all the benefits. Jesus went all in. He calls you to follow him and be all in too. That quote from C.S. Lewis at the end of his book continues. He says, give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes. 
every wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you'll find in the long run hatred and loneliness and despair and rage and ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else is thrown in. So our big idea today is to follow Jesus, you must exchange your life for him. Jesus' rhetorical question and his teaching challenges our motive. What are we trying to gain? Do you have God's purposes in mind or your own? For the sake of the gospel of the kingdom of God, it requires an exchanged life. To follow him, we must exchange our life for his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we realize that you challenge us. You challenge us in what we are thinking because we want to hold on to and latch on to things that we want, things that we desire, and yet you say, turn to me and I will give you rest, I will give you peace, I am your Savior, I am the Messiah, I am the King. And Father, for many of us, we struggle. Even after we've committed to you, we struggle with things of self that we want to latch on to. We allow them to trick us into thinking that they will satisfy more than you. Father, we sang before that your name is powerful. Father, we submit ourselves to you because you are the king. We pray, Lord, that we would seek your purposes and your ways in our lives. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.